Welcome to Look Toward the Mountain, a podcast series about life inside the Heart Mountain Japanese American Relocation Center, located in northwestern Wyoming during World War II. I'm your host, Rob Busher. Thanks to the support of the Embassy of Japan in the United States, the Heart Mountain Wyoming Foundation is presenting a special three-episode series exploring the Japanese American experience beyond Heart Mountain and our relationship to Japan. The third episode explores how Japanese American identity has been shaped by our connections to and relationship with Japan and Japanese culture. A date which will live in infamy. Military authorities therefore determined that all of them, citizens and aliens alike, would have to move. I think I'll always remember the sound of the gate playing. Japanese Americans are unique compared to many other Asian ethnic groups in the United States. According to the Census Bureau's 2019 American Community Survey, 73% of Japanese Americans reported being born in the U.S. Compared to the overall average of 43% American born across all Asian ethnicities, Japanese Americans are nearly twice as likely to have been born and raised in this country. Although there have been additional immigration since the post-war era, the Shinnike, or New Japanese Diaspora, is much smaller by comparison to the multi-generational Japanese Americans whose families immigrated prior to the Immigration Act of 1924. This means that the majority of Japanese Americans are descendants of people who were directly impacted by the forced removal and mass incarceration in American concentration camps during World War II. From the post-war era onwards, the relationships that Japanese Americans had with their ancestral culture vary greatly. Most Japanese Americans stopped speaking the Japanese language after the Nisei, second generation, in part because of the stigma of wartime incarceration. Despite the loss of language, many persons of Japanese ancestry practice other aspects of traditional culture in their daily lives. Some families maintained this relationship during the post-war resettlement period, while others whose families intentionally assimilated now struggle to make meaning of traditions that were lost to time. Another divergence from a singular cultural narrative is caused by the widespread intermarriage that both Shin-Nikkei and multi-generational Japanese Americans have engaged in during recent decades. Past census data shows that only 36% of Japanese Americans report being married to someone of the same ethnicity. 55% reported marrying a non-Asian, with an additional 9% marrying non-Japanese Asian. This percentage increases dramatically with each subsequent generation. The Yonsei, or fourth generation, which I belong to, is estimated to have an intermarriage rate of nearly 90%. Sansei Daryl Kunitomi is a board member of the Heart Mountain Wyoming Foundation, whose family were incarcerated in Wyoming during the war years. Kunitomi reflects on the Japanese-American community's place in our country. The weird thing about being Japanese-American in America is that we're a fading culture. Our birth rate is low. Our outmarriage is high. We've moved out of the cities into the burbs. My generation, the, the great sanseis of the 60s and 70s and 80s, began to become so acculturated that many of us became pretty white. That's just the way it is. We're a fading minority. We've been a very important minority. 
We've been part of the fabric of the country. I think our lives have told some of the greatest tales in American history. As the Japanese-American community continues to diversify through inter-ethnic and interracial marriages, this raises questions about whether a community that was once thought to be culturally homogenous will continue to practice Japanese traditions at all. If so, what do these traditions look like today, and what might they look like in the future? This episode has been compiled from a dozen interviews with Japanese-Americans spanning three generations in an effort to gauge to what extent Japanese culture is currently being practiced by our community, and how our relationship, or lack thereof, with Japan has informed this practice. If you have been a regular listener to this series, you will note the format differs somewhat from previous episodes. This is done in an effort to present the interview subjects in much greater detail, I will also share details of my own family's history and personal relationship to Japanese identity throughout this episode. My interest in this topic comes from my family's rather unique connection to Japan. Few Yonsei have had the privilege of knowing their Issei forebearers. My maternal great-grandmother, Asako Marumoto, or Hibachan, as we called her, lived to the age of 95, until I was 18 years old. I was blessed with this direct connection to an Issei immigrant that few others in my generation have experienced. Having an Issei matriarch in my life who told us firsthand about where she grew up in Hiroshima and our relatives in Japan gave us a more direct understanding of our lineage and ancestral culture of origin than many other Japanese-American families. This was not entirely a positive thing, since Hibachan lost cousins to the atomic bomb and carried with her a burden of survivor's guilt that was transmitted across generations. Although our family was forcibly removed from their home in Gardena, California, where they worked as tenant farmers on the Kurata Ranch in the aftermath of Pearl Harbor, they avoided wartime incarceration by fleeing inland to Leighton, Utah, where my great-grandfather, Masaichiro Marumoto, had a cousin who worked on the railroad. Masaichiro was a judo sensei who was trained by Kano Jigoro, the founder of judo. Although he passed away before I was born, his presence in my childhood was felt whenever we visited Hibachan and through the stories my mother told about him. I have spoken at length about Masaichiro with my obachan, Yukari Maikzel. And my father, you know, is, was born under the sign of the tiger. My romantic view is a tiger cannot be caged, and so that's why we moved. The thing that was, they had to have the equipment to start their life over again when they moved from California to Utah. And my mother made sure she carried the USU, is it, to the steamers? Mm-hmm. When we lived in California, when we packed our car and trailer to move to Utah, that was one of the things she had in the uh, trailer. She, she took things that were important. Although my family were forcibly removed, By managing to escape the wartime incarceration, resettling during the so-called voluntary evacuation left an indelible mark on our family's identity as Japanese Americans. Although they were very much traumatized by the experience of forced removal, I credit Masaichiro and Asako's decision to flee California as the reason that we have maintained our relationship with Japanese culture to the extent we have. While some members of our extended family were incarcerated at Crystal City and Jerome camps, I believe the Nisei elders in my close family felt a sense of survivor's guilt from knowing that they did not have to go to camp when the vast majority of their community did. 
That guilt was transmitted across generations, to the extent that for many years I felt unsure of where our family's place was in the Japanese-American story, whose dominant narrative continues to be the wartime incarceration. It wasn't until I met Karen Korematsu, the daughter of Fred Korematsu, at the 2018 Heart Mountain Pilgrimage and told her our family history that I was able to relate my family's experience to the broader narrative. When I told Karen our story, she said, Oh, your family were resistors. Well, that's really cool. By reframing my great-grandparents' decision as part of the resistor narrative, I began to recognize their practice of cultural maintenance as an act of resistance as well. My hibachan taught me my first words in English and Japanese, introduced me to Japanese cuisine, and sparked my interest in Japanese cinema, something that has driven the direction of my entire professional career. She was deeply involved in her Buddhist temple community, and for our family at least, fulfilled the role of cultural bearer and wisdom keeper. Although I never met Masaichiro, his commitment to passing on traditional Japanese culture was apparent in his practice as a judo sensei. As a godan, fifth degree black belt, Masaichiro was the highest-ranked judo practitioner in the state of Utah, who co-founded the Judo Association of Utah. Mayobachan Yukari Maixel elaborates on her father's judo practice. The fathers of the boys wanted to have judo taught, and they knew that my father knew judo. If they built a dojo, he said he would he would teach. And so that was the rules that they went by. When the dojo opened up, my father arrived at the dojo. The kids were running all over the place, having great time. The shoes were all over the place. And he walked in and looked at that. And he went about gathering all the shoes, laid them in the front of the door in a nice, neat row. He went into the middle of the mat and sat down with his leg crossed and waited. And pretty soon the kids figured it out. They knew they were running around like, you know, kids would be. And they saw their shoes all lined up. And so they came and sat down in a line in front of him. That was the first day. The second time that they had their judo lesson, when father walked in, they were already sitting in a nice, neat line. <laughs> and they were ready for him. Knowing that his students were mostly Nisei and Sansei boys who had come out of Topaz Relocation Center in Utah and other camps, it was clear that Masaichiro wanted to instill a sense of pride in their Japanese heritage at a time when Japanese culture was deeply stigmatized. It seems to me that this was a conscious choice by our Issei progenitors to maintain our connection to Japan, despite the intense pressure to assimilate in the post-war era. But speaking with other community members... It seems that the Marimotos were somewhat of an anomaly, especially among families who endured the wartime incarceration. It is more common to hear stories where people consciously attempted to assimilate. Some became Christian converts, others joined the military, and some people married into white families. Like my family, some people also maintained a kind of cultural connection, but typically stopped speaking the Japanese language in their homes and gradually lost touch with that aspect of the culture. Miru Osuga is a multi-ethnic yonsei of Japanese and Taiwanese descent whose family was incarcerated at Heart Mountain. Their paternal grandfather, James Osuga, was a Nisei veteran of the 442nd Regimental Combat Team, and later became a Christian minister. Miru shares some of his stories from the post-war resettlement. 
through the GI Bill, he was able to get the rest of his family out of camp after he served in the war and relocate to Ohio. And after that, he started becoming a minister. I would say my grandpa really worked his whole life to be more American. I can't say for sure that's his intention, but from what I know about him, he would wear his I served in World War II hat everywhere he went, even to restaurants. And his my grandma would always tell him, ask him to take it off because it was impolite. But he was always wearing his hat, kind of to show what he'd done for the country. I did ask my dad, like, if my grandpa did ever talk about his experience in the camp or in the war. And he did say that in some of his sermons, he would talk about his experience in camp, but he didn't talk about it too much because his congregation was almost all white, if not all white. And so in some ways, it would feel like pointing a finger at them. But it, he, he did talk about it. And he was someone who did talk about justice in a very emotional way, I think. I remember coming across one of his sermons. They're all like typewritten out. One of them I saw was talking about incarceration and kind of talking about not the Jap not Japanese incarceration, but incarceration of like different other communities and jail. Um, and kind of, it basically was pointing towards abolition as well, or pointing towards like the problems with the criminal justice system. And I think knowing that that was a sermon that he probably, a sermon that he gave in front of all white congregation in rural Ohio feels pretty powerful to me. And I think reflects on kind of the values that he tried to embody in, in, in the ways that he could. An incarceration survivor from Heart Mountain, Sansei Prentice Uchida remembers the impact that the camp experience and subsequent resettlement had on his own life. I was born in 1940s, just turned one when Pearl Harbor happened, and it was in San Jose, California. So originally, I think we went to Tule Lake because my father was from Sacramento, and I think that's where we were living at the time. And so went to Tule Lake. From there, I think in uh, 1943, I think we transferred to Heart Mountain because that's where my mother's families were. But most of my family was in Heart Mountain. I have probably 35 relatives, uncles, aunts, grandfather, grandmother, cousins in Heart Mountain. And so it's quite a large group. I guess my whole family as a whole, we cover the gamut. I think three members were in the 442nd. One, my Uncle George, uh, was a resistor from Heart Mountain. Had one uncle and his family after Pearl Harbor, instead of going to camp, they went to Japan. And so that was a totally different experience for them. They didn't come back until 1958. Actually, the kids, the two kids were school age when they went over. And they came back, they were out of school. One got married over there. And so there was a kind of a differentiation there in, in the family. Like many families, the Japanese, I mean, it was a conscious decision not to speak Japanese, although the only time we had to or wanted to was with uh, respect to my grandparents because they spoke no English. And so, you know, as kids, we had very little relationship with them, although because we were on a farm, I did work with my grandfather a bit, you know, irrigating strawberries, I remember. But the the center of the Japanese American community was really in Japantown, which still exists there. So the Nihonmachi is one of the few, I think one of the two or three left, and it still exists. And from the country, we moved into the city or into San Jose when I was 11. You know, I think a third of the students were Japanese, basically there, and, and a lot from around town. And so that's who I grew up with. Although Uchida grew up surrounded by Japanese Americans, he felt a lot of the Japanese culture was lost with his parents' generation. I'm a product of assimilation on steroids. I married a Caucasian, and so my, my kids are hapas, right? And they married Caucasians, and so my grandkids 
or what I coined a new term, quapas, <laughs> their, their quarter. My kids are in their 40s, approaching 50. But they were always grew up in a white community, basically. White neighborhood, white community, etc. Association with J- Japanese was when we go to San Jose, visit my mom and dad when they're alive and, and their grandparents. And there's some connection there. I mean, more than with me, with them. They had a real connection with the grandparents, really loved them to the extent that all my grandkids are named after my mother and father, the Japanese names. So there was a close relationship there. Although what they instilled in them, I don't know. I'm not sure. I always think they skipped through me. I don't th- I'm not sure I gave them much, to be honest with you. I, I, it's really my mother and father, if there's anything. That way of thinking and doing rubbed off on the kids. I, I don't know how the grandkids are going to be. Well, I thought that of my kids also. They're totally Americanized or whatever, you know. Yonsei Jason Matsumoto is a Chicago-based filmmaker and taiko artist whose family resettled in the Midwest after being incarcerated at Tule Lake, Gila River, and Rower. Like all Japanese Americans who endured the incarceration, the wartime experience had a profound impact on their identities. Chicago was the city with the largest Japanese-American resettler population in the post-war era, which may have insulated the Matsumoto family from some of the pressures to assimilate. Jason reflects on their experiences. They have narratives and stories that kind of like follow along the lines of like the general population of Japanese Americans. Maybe a big split was that all of them stayed in Chicago. It's been really interesting to me because within my four grandparents, I have one who was unbelievably outspoken about the experience and about how unjust it was. He did not build a career or anything that was like activism related, but he was not shy in sharing the story. My grandfather became like a very central community figure in Chicago. He came to Chicago early, was like very involved in setting up youth programs as all these young people from the camps were being released early. There was all kinds of social pressure, right? Like these leave clearance forms where you were literally signing these documents that said, I won't build a community, I won't speak Japanese, all this stuff. And it's really interesting to see years and years later how this kind of prescribed assimilationist type of strategy actually played out in Chicago in a fairly different way because it was those early 1943 to 47 years where most of these organizations that are heavily JA legacy community organizations were developed and and created. You can do as much as you can as the government to push people to not become and create communities when they these people just need like simple social services and the ability to understand a new city's policies in Japanese like all these different functions that were incredibly important to the community they ended up like really actually building and developing a community here so I always look at that as like this moment of unbelievable resilience although probably felt just like they were trying to ensure that other people who looked like them and who were having a similar experience landing in the city. There was like maybe three, four hundred Japanese Americans living in Chicago before resettlement into the city. There were like 20,000 within four or five years, right? Learning about all this stuff, you know, as an adult and then like looking back and thinking about how like I'm personally impacted by certain things that happened in my own life, not nearly as traumatic or terrible as you know, losing everything and being locked up and then and then and then being asked to just like recreate the life. Sansei Masaru Ed Nakawatase was born in Poston Camp and grew up in the rural farming community of Bridgeton, New Jersey, where his parents worked for Seabrook Farms. Similar to the experience of those who resettled in Chicago, the approximately 3,000 Japanese Americans who came to the region were somewhat sheltered from the stigmatization of Japanese culture and identity that many others faced in the post-war era. 
Nakawatase remembers the role that Seabrook Buddhist Temple played in preserving traditional aspects of Japanese culture, and one tradition in particular that he misses. The Buddhist Temple, they had a role, I think, of cultural maintenance. They offered Japanese language school, and they seemed much more directly connected to Japanese culture. One thing that I loved, and I wish we could do it again, was New Year's. New Year's was an open house in which um, friends and neighbors would come over. They would eat. I mean, you'd have tempura, and you'd have sushi, and you'd have chashu, and, and various other traditional Japanese foods uh, served. And, and there was there was booze, you know, sake and, and uh, other things. And it was like, I love the food. <laughs> I mean, and I wish I, I, I wish we had, you know, that again. I mean, I, I, I liked a lot. I, no, I liked the food. I liked the, even the process of it, getting the food together and all that. I mean, I'm sure I maybe would like it less if I had to do it all myself. But, but I think that, that that made me feel good about being Japanese, or at least feeling like I was Japanese. I also used to you know, be uh, mochi making. And, and early on, we had a community house. And my recollection is that there was space allocated to a family that made tofu behind the community house. And I'm not sure that, I mean, I don't know if there are any people around now in Seabrook that remember that. Uh, I mean, food is an association I make with the community, for sure. Although both of Nakawatase's Nisei parents spoke Japanese fluently, they did not pass on the language to their children. I think for a number of us, you know, and, and I'm, I'm not proud of it, but I, it was a kind of an Americanization, even as that was taking place and that we wanted to, we embraced it in various ways. It's now a source of some regret. I mean, it would have, would have been very handy, very useful yeah, on all levels to, to, to know the language. While most Japanese-American families stopped speaking Japanese after the Nisei generation, some among the younger generations are attempting to reclaim this aspect of their culture. Yonsei, Christy Ishii, grew up participating in summer camp programs that taught Japanese traditional culture. Ishii recounts how her early childhood experiences led to an interest in Japan from a young age, which later served as inspiration to study Japanese language. I am fourth generation on my mom's side and fifth generation on my dad's side. From my grandma's recollection, like I read some of these things that she wrote down saying like the family like burned a lot of photos and they used to have like a whole set, like a Hinamatsuri doll set. And like that was gone when they came back to the house. It sounded like... Yeah, a lot of the culture was kind of buried or just they continued to make, I think, like Japanese food at home. But like as far as artifacts and stuff, cultural related, culturally significant things, there's nothing to my knowledge that was like preserved. The one thing that did have like a semi, I don't know if it was a large impact, but I wasn't put into J school. So like not like the language schools, but there was this thing called Hikari no Gakko, which is kind of like Jankenpo Gakko that like cultural kind of summer camp thing that is in like NorCal. And it was two weeks out of the summer, every summer. And I went from first grade until I graduated and left the hometown. And it was like a first through sixth grade program where each grade was like themed and we would do things that were like traditionally Japanese. So like our grandparents' age, when they came to America, their image of Japan was basically put into like a Japanese summer camp so that so the offspring could like learn about very traditional things. So like the mochitsuki stuff, taiko, judo, kendo, all the physical martial arts stuff. 
plus making a bamboo flute, making washi paper, doing the green tea ceremony, everything you can imagine. And then in sixth grade is when we learned about the incarceration of Japanese Americans. And that was the first time I was introduced to that concept. But it was very brief. It was like this activity with a suitcase, you know, on a paper. And they would say, like, can you imagine if this happened to you, what would you bring? And so it was a little bit of a fun kid game. It didn't really, it didn't mean a whole lot at that time until I got to high school. And then we did actual things related to people like Masashimoto, who was going around explaining his story. And so that was like a big part of of how that kind of entered my world. But what we also would do, we would sing Japanese songs. They would write it out in Romaji, so in English, and we would read off of that. I had no idea what the song meant half the time, most of the time. It was just that we were all these like, like Japanese American kids. None of us really knew the words. We just were singing it based off of sound and copying the teacher. And I look back on that because now that I speak Japanese, I think, wow, is that why I can pronounce the words well, not knowing even the meaning, but I grew up with that two-week thing <laughs> every summer. Erin Aoyama is a mixed-race yonsei whose paternal grandparents were incarcerated at Heart Mountain. Her family went more of the assimilation route during the post-war era, which included the loss of their Japanese language. We grew up sort of with this very Americanized idea about who we were. And by we, I mean my siblings and I and our identity. But all of us in different ways have sort of reached back to try to understand those connections. We grew up not seeing people around us who were Japanese American, not learning anything about this history in school, partly because we were on the East Coast, but also because of how we learn history. As we've gotten older, it's been this process of trying to understand that connection and realizing the pieces of our childhood and of our dad and of our extended family that are still very much tied to Japan or tied to 1880s version of Japan, <laughs> because that's sort of like what came to the United States and where culture is. But but it's been a fun learning process, a fun realization that there's always more than what we think, even about ourselves and our families, that I think has just been a fun, good way to approach like meeting other people or learning about history or being part of communities. There's just always more layers and more nuance and more complexity than just the simple, yeah, my grandmother was super traumatized and wanted to assimilate and didn't want her kids to experience what she had experienced, which I'm sure was part of it. But, you know, also this sense of just, this is what happens when you've been in a country far from your, the birthplace of your parents. Yeah. And the loss of language. I'm sad about that because... My dad speaks no Japanese, but like both of my grandparents grew up speaking Japanese. So there is that very definite break there. Even when they went to camp, my grandmother was 20 years old and she listed herself as Christian. The rest of her family listed themselves as Buddhist. So a kind of interesting piece of even before going to camp, my grandmother had made certain choices that were different from her family and who knows why. Yes, they definitely, my grandmother, it seems, had a different experience and relationship to her Japanese-ness both before camp, but then definitely afterward. Reflecting on her biracial heritage and its impact on her identity, Aoyama shares that it was actually her white mother who maintained many of the family ties to her Japanese-American relatives. My mom did so much to make sure that we stayed in touch with our grandparents on both sides and all that. So she really thought a lot about at a time when conversations about raising biracial children probably weren't <laughs> happening in the same way. I think she thought a lot about that and that we didn't look like her. Like my mom is blonde. And so there were a lot of instances growing up where it was always a shock. See us with our mom. And it was like, oh, are you the nanny or whatever? So I think we couldn't help but have that some of those conversations. My siblings and I really grew up without a lot of connection to our Japanese. Japanese 
culture, a lot of, without a lot of like explicit understanding of where those pieces came in. I think as I've gotten older, I've looked back like, oh, this was something that only our family did. <laughs> like none of our neighbors or friends did. But I think like so much of how we grew up was this mix between my mom and my dad that I love and appreciate now, but also makes it harder to sort of locate the pieces of, of Japanese identity. As a multi-ethnic Japanese Taiwanese American, Miru Osuga shares similar issues with their identity that stem in part from the loss of Japanese language. Language always feels like a big part of cultural connection. I'm like both Taiwanese and Japanese, and knowing a little bit of Chinese and Taiwanese makes me feel a lot closer to that part of my identity. And knowing no Japanese feels like Japan is more strange. And I think the same is for my dad. I think if I were to ask him if he felt more Japanese or American, or it would probably be, I'm Japanese American. I'm not Japanese, you know. He never learned language because my grandma never knew the language. I think my earliest memory of being aware of my Japanese American identity is actually the conflict between Taiwan and Japan. Japan's colonial history is a colonial history. <laughs> and Japan colonized Taiwan. And the marriage between my mom and dad was for the most part accepted. And people of this generation, of my generation, have a much more rosy view on Japan now. But people of my grandma's generation definitely some people held a lot against Japan. So my mom's aunt was really upset by her marrying a Japanese person. So even if my dad didn't feel like he was Japanese, that's still his perception. His last name is Otsuga. My last name is Otsuga. My first name is Miru. Like there's a lot of indications of my Japanese-ness and his Japanese-ness. I think my mom made a joke once where she was like, you know, like, haha, like the two parts of you are like kind of at odds with each other. At that moment, I was just like, haha. And also, uh, there is a colonial legacy there. And it's just like something that is part of my, my reality. <laughs> the transnational experiences of Japanese Americans have also shaped the identities and Japanese cultural practice among individuals who have worked or studied abroad in Japan. Like my family, Nisei Floyd Mori and his family were able to avoid wartime incarceration because they lived outside of the military exclusion zone in Utah. Mori credits his upbringing for instilling a knowledge of Japanese language and culture, but it was not until college that he began identifying more strongly with his heritage. You know, like many people during that era, being Japanese was a little bit self-conscious. I wasn't really happy to be Japanese because of how I saw it depicted in movies and cartoons and things like that. So being Japanese was not something I really enjoyed. All through my years uh, as a child and as an adolescent going through high school, I didn't really embrace the Japanese culture. My freshman year of college, I went to Southern California. There, lived with my brother in the West L.A. portion of Los Angeles, where there are a lot of Japanese. And in school and college, I met some Japanese Americans. I began to pal around with Japanese Americans and for the first time really dated some Japanese American girls. You know, my attitude began to change. I felt very comfortable in that, uh, that atmosphere. And then later, you know, I became a Mormon and I served a mission for the Mormon church. And I was asked to go to Hawaii. Again, that was another reawakening for me because the majority of people in Hawaii are Asian. My mission president at that time saw that maybe I could be some value in visiting Japanese homes. So I spent a lot of my mission visiting Japanese homes. I got reacquainted with the culture. And in Hawaii, 
The Japanese were very powerful in many ways. A lot of the leading business people happened to meet Danny Noe on the street when he was campaigning to be congressman. And so you had this kind of a, a change. My pride in being Japanese-American grew. And uh, it uh, moved me to when I went back to college. I went to Brigham Young University. They had an Asian studies program. Uh, that's one of my majors was Asian studies. I was very active in the Japanese club. Did a lot of things on campus as a Japanese club. So a lot of my associations where I didn't have any as a teenager and as a kid now from college became very embedded in the Japanese community. Mori would go on to do business in Japan over several decades spanning the bubble period of the Japanese economy. He recalls some of his experiences navigating the cultural differences. I majored in Asian studies, so a lot about Japan, China, and my other major, I had a dual major, was economics. And so uh, going through college, my later years in college, my dream job was to do something in international business in Asia, particularly Japan. So that was always in the back of my mind, but uh, I had an inter interview to teach college in California. And I thought, well, if I go to California, I can probably work on a, my PhD. I had my master's at that time. And so uh, I took the job and uh, started teaching college in uh, the Bay Area. One thing led to another. And, you know, I got involved in politics. When I became a state assemblyman, it was an era when Japanese business growth in the United States was at its peak. In the 70s, 60s and 70s, you see, saw a large growth of Japanese business in California, particularly. Sony, uh, Kyocera, Hitachi, all these manufacturing companies, besides the banks and the trading companies. So in that process, as a politician, I'm the Asian face. I got to know some of these Japanese business people. In fact, I coerced Governor Brown into forming a Japanese business council of Japanese business people because, again, Japanese businesses were coming to California. So let's get acquainted with them. And for the Japanese business people, this is great. You know, they got to meet with the governor a couple of times a year directly. And uh, so it was a win-win situation on both sides. That allowed me to become acquainted with many high-level Japanese businesses. And whenever somebody from Japan came, like uh, former prime minister a couple of times, Governor Brown would invite me down to be in the meeting and the conversation he had with those political people as well as business. That was my grounding in getting acquainted with Japanese businesses, Japanese politicians. I moved back to Utah, created this new company called Mori International. And with my friends and contacts uh, in Japan, I was able to go to presidents and high-level vice presidents and they gave me access to the banks and the trading companies and some of the other companies that I worked with. So that's how I evolved from being a college professor to politics and then into consulting business. I spent about 20, 25 years of my life uh, traveling Japan, working mainly to uh, tie American companies or half American companies find partners in Japan. And yes, yeah, Subway was one of my projects. Another major project that I worked on was with Ito Chu, and it was in the petroleum business. Being Japanese myself, the Japanese side trusted me and confided in me. And you know, I was able to talk to them where my American clients 
would have a much more difficult time talking to them. So, you know, I, I spent a lot of hours at two o'clock in the morning here in the United States talking to my Japanese counterparts in Japan uh, because they had trust and developed a trust in what I could do. And so uh, those friendships from, you know, my California days led to broaden my connections and friendships in Japan. And since I had uh, friends of high caliber, other people trusted me. You know, that's the Japanese way, right? Prentice Uchida also had long-standing business relationships in Japan, where his company was active during the bubble economy. At 28, I started this company with two other guys, Vector General, and we made interactive computer graphic systems. These were three-dimensional images on screen. And this is a time when computers were just lights and switches, but we had 3D images on the screen. And so our kind of claim to fame was that we were in the original Star Wars movies, that we did uh, the real-time sequences in the Star Wars movie, cockpit displays, that sort of thing. It wasn't a big deal, but that's where we made hay and met customers from all over the world, from Boeing and Ford to Namigan and Holland. And so one of the things was that we wanted Japanese distributorship, not to leverage me being Japanese, but, you know, just business as usual. We also had a distributor from Europe. Along came Hakuto. Forget how we got introduced to them, but they wanted to, looking at representing us, et cetera, and that sort of thing. And so the, their, you know, middle management guy came out, et cetera, and hooked up. And then finally, uh, the next person out was Takayama, who's the founder, chairman. He came out. And I believe that, yeah, that they, they found out that I was Japanese-American, et cetera. And so that's, and so he wanted to come out and see if this was the real deal or whatever. I don't know. But anyway, they took us on and he, uh, we, we struck up a pretty good, uh, real friendship. I mean, he's kind of like a mentor father figure. He was 20 years older than me or thereabouts, I guess. To be honest, I had no interest in any of that. I mean, you know, the fact that, you know, it's like, uh, I realized that, yeah, part of the reason he, that we got the business or he took us on, et cetera, was that, uh, that I was Japanese. The other thing about it is I was in my early 30s. I was like 32, 33 years old, CEO of the company. And uh, my counterparts, people my age, were the young guys. They're, you know, in the hallways smoking, et cetera, whatever, you know. And I'm with all these older guys, right? So that was unusual for them to see me, basically. It was unusual. I, I dressed a little funky. I mean, I was kind of like from the hippie era, et cetera. So, you know, I had very loud clothes, et cetera, although with suit and ties, but uh, long hair. And so I looked quite different from everybody else over there. But I was very close to a lot of those people, even uh, talked about the war. I remember this person, Vice President Nishida, we're talking about the war. And I guess he was in Tokyo at the time when they got bombed and firebombed, et cetera, and that sort of thing. And, you know, I was kind of talking a little bit cavalier about the war, et cetera, and, you know, being in camp. And then one remarkable thing he said to me, kind of just set me back. He says, you know, Uchida-san, have you ever been hungry? I don't know. Yeah, I've been hungry, you know, you know, you know, late to dinner or something like that. And he said, no, have you really been hungry? And what he's talking about is, I guess, you know, during the firebombing, you know, they had to leave and they leave Tokyo up in the mountains, et cetera, you know, away from the fire and, and nothing to eat. I guess eating whatever they can find, rats or whatever, and that sort of thing. And so compared to... I think that Japanese Americans here going to a concentration camp here was easy. And it wasn't easy, but it wasn't like that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Where they got bombed by the Americans, not like Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but Tokyo got firebombed. And so these, most of the, a lot of people lived. And so they had to flee. And 
So what do they do? So anyway, there was that aspect because there's this whole generation there of people that were older than me. They were, they were kind of like the these days here, you know, that era. So that, that was, it was an interesting part and it's kind of getting the history. To be honest with you, I wasn't totally into it at that time. I wish I was because I would have got a lot more if I was into it, but I wasn't. During the same time period, my Obachan, Yukari Maikso, was making her own connections back to Japan in a different and unexpected way. As the only docent of Japanese ancestry working at the Denver Natural History Museum, she was asked to guide a group of Japanese museum curators through their exhibit display. A miscommunication about their schedule nearly prevented them from meeting. In the 70s, the Japanese museums were renovating their museum, and they were visiting, the directors were visiting the different museums that were doing very well or high quality or whatever to see what was going on that made them successful. And they came to the Denver Museum. They had come in the middle of the night because evidently their secretary set them up with the wrong time. And instead of being eight o'clock in the morning, it was eight o'clock in the evening. And so I had been trying to figure out where they were all day long because I thought they were going to be there at eight o'clock in the morning. At eight o'clock at night, I finally figured out they've got the time wrong. So I did my analysis on the thinking of Japanese and I thought, well, they would probably stay in the best hotel in town. So I called the uh, Brown Palace Hotel and I, I asked them if they had any Japanese-speaking guests there. And they said, yeah, we have several people, several men that have checked in. And so I said, could you put me through to them? And so that's how I got in touch with them. And I, I spoke broken Japanese at that time. And so I struggled through that. And they only had one man who could speak a little bit of English, and that was Mr. Sasaki-san. And so we made that connection there. And the next morning, at 8 o'clock in the morning, they were going to leave. So I opened uh, the Denver Museum of Natural History, had a guy come and open it at 4 o'clock in the morning so that we could visit the museum and talk about what it was like, where, where, why it was at such and such, the eye level of it, the exhibits for the viewers, and etc., uh, etc. Et so they, they left, and... Sasaki-san kept my name, and he and I started corresponding. And that's how I started with the museum people in Japan. Sasaki-san would remain lifelong friends with my Obachan, as they visited several times when she accompanied my grandfather overseas on business trips to Japan, which helped shape her identity as a Japanese-American. Her younger sister, Seiko Kikuda, retained her Japanese culture through more traditional practice of bon orori. For the last three decades, Seiko has been the dance instructor for Eugene, Oregon's Obon. 28 years ago, someone was leading it. And then the second year, somebody asked me to take over. And I thought, why me? <laughs> I don't know. But she said, the person said, well, would you like to lead the dancing? And because I like Obon dancing. So I said, yeah, why not? So I started and thank God for YouTube. <laughs> We did a few basic dances like, you know, the Tankobushka and some other dances that a group from Salem, Oregon came and taught us. So I had a basic about five dances. And so I looked and then I had a connection with the Ogden Buddhist Church and uh, as a good friend of my mom's. And so I asked him, well, would you send me some videos or you know, dance instructions? So she did that. Well, this was VHS tape and there was no... <laughs> 
DVDs. So she sent me some and I'd learned off of that. And then later on, he used YouTube to do dances. And so now we have a repertoire of about 18 dances we do, but I try to get new ones every year to change out. And that's how I got started. So I've been teaching for the last 25, 26 years, <laughs> but it's been fun because I enjoy it. And, you know, somehow you get more Japanese when you're doing Japanese dance. <laughs> Jason Matsumoto was already deeply connected to Japanese culture through his upbringing in the Chicago Japanese American community. But as a taiko artist, he has been able to deepen his understanding of the differences between Japanese and Japanese diasporic culture as two divergent paths of the same origin. Matsumoto comments on the cultural exchange with contemporary Japan through taiko. There's a Japanese company called Miyamoto Onosuke Shoten. They create like the $10,000 like Cadillac drums, you know? They're like one of the official makers of the Mikoshi, the portable shrines. I remember I went to this guy's shop and he's got, you know, all these workers who are like hand carving these things. And he's like, this thing is about the price of a Ferrari. Oh my God, that's crazy. He's like all handmade lacquered, you know? And they are like the, the official instrument providers to the emperor of Japan, the, like a 160-year-old company, pre-capitalism company, <laughs> you know? And um, the son, who is about 45, his name is Yoshi, he is now the head of the company. And there's a lot of things that he can do within, like, underneath the banner of Miyamoto Onosuke Shoten that is supporting tradition, ensuring that these rich traditions of, of, like, Japanese culture, like the national theater, no kabuki, all this stuff, are being maintained and being supported and resourced. And then he created this other company called Kadon, which is this online platform that is intended to spread some of the best taiko instruction across the world online. I work as a consultant for Kadon. What is so fascinating is that I think Yoshi kind of embodies this vision of what Taiko can be. He's not just thinking about U.S. versus Japan and like Japanese American culture versus Japanese culture, but he's looking at it across this like entire lens of the globe. And right now what's happening is Europe is kind of exploding with Taiko. There's like 70 groups in Germany, just in Germany alone, you know? And so we're watching this take place. And this is even more fascinating because when I go to Europe to like engage with these communities, there's no connection at all to Japanese American culture. And it's like so jarring for me. I'm like, whoa, it's just a bunch of white people, like there's a bunch of Germans playing taiko and like, like, what's the connection, you know? But Yoshi is really interested in trying to unlock the essence of whatever it is, like Spanish culture. And like, there's like unbelievable traditions that come from music makers and art makers in these different places. And what happens when you infuse that with taiko? It's this mentality that's coming from this very particular Japanese company that you would expect to be like, it's this or nothing. But he's building this platform to be like, no, 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 taiko is something meaningful to anybody. And it's up to them to kind of like form and shape and, and build something. And the way he sees it, like there's artists in Japan who are doing amazing things that are so deeply tied to their particular region's history and legacy and culture. And he's like, I'm not worried about us losing the Japanese-ness. Like that's for the Japanese taiko players to discover and develop and to continue working on. He totally understands like, this is a completely different meaning for the Japanese American community and that has to be supported. Because like, why would you tell them no, that this can't be something that they have found meaning in for so many years and it's wrong? Like, what's the point of that? Like, this is, this is a platform that can be used. And I subscribe to that mentality because I've, A, it like, <laughs> it lets me be free, but also it's something that, you know, I've seen, like I've seen the, the firsthand impact of, you know, San Jose Taiko and Kinata and these like 45 year old organizations who've been the bedrocks of Japanese American community taiko playing and they're still around and they're still doing their thing and they're still leading. I have no kind of concern about as this stuff gets reformed and reshaped and it, it gets re 
reinvented. Our confidence in our story as Japanese Americans is going to center and create foundations for the artwork that we create. In my own extended family, my cousin Sheldon Marumoto and his brother Mike are somewhat unique with their relationship to Japan. Although their father Hiroki was the Nisei brother of Maobachan, their mother Shizue was a Shin Ise Japanese immigrant. Sheldon reflects on his upbringing in Utah and the lack of connection to Japanese culture there. The funny thing is, from my mother at least, a connection to Japanese culture wasn't exactly overtly encouraged. My missionary service in Japan was the time where I learned the Japanese language. Aside from some, you know, some studies on my own for, you know, the usual, let's let's learn hiragana and katakana, Japanese phonetic alphabets, and for a like a single year of, of elementary Japanese studies at uh, university, that's where I learned to speak. Uh, where I learned to converse. This is not for lack of trying. This was a conscious decision or effort on on my mother's part in that I asked, I says, well, you're fluent. I mean, she was a native of Japan, lived there for 40 years. You know, of course she's fluent. I asked her, you know, teach me Japanese. And she, she outright refused, interestingly enough. She said, you live in America, you will learn English. And if you want to learn Japanese... You can learn it either at university or you can you can you can go to Japan and learn it on your own. But this is a topic of conversation to come up every once in a while. I want to learn Japanese. No, you're not learning Japanese, you know, you're learning English because you have to live you know, you live in America, you'll learn English. Mm-hmm. Which is which I've later learned to understand I later understood to be one of the polarities of the Nisei experience, right? Some Issei parents will strive to keep a sense of Japanese identity in their children. And others will go completely the other way and say, you're not Japanese anymore. You're American. You learn American things, you'll do American things, and you learn English and all this other stuff. And my mom was definitely that way. Of course, the other polarity being as an Issei, you have a fundamental identity crisis that's kind of baked in. I feel like I'm an American. I feel like, you know, I'm among all of these Caucasian people, but I don't look the part. And so a person can either dive into the culture, dive into the expectations, the, the stereotypical studious don't make waves, don't make trouble. That's the way I went. Or you can go and you can try and out American the Americans. And that's the way, of course, Mike went. Like Floyd Mori's sons, Sheldon and his brother Mike were raised as Mormons in Layton, Utah, and also spent time in Japan during their mission trips. Sheldon reflects on his time in Japan and the impact that his Japanese-American Mormon upbringing had on his relationship with Japaneseness. Being in Japan, just being in the locality, gave me a sense of where to go and who to ask for these sorts of things. And it just so happened that I was able to strike up a conversation with Masaichiro's younger brother, Kenji Madamoto, who lived in Tokyo at the time. Nobody knew where he was. I sent letters to all of our relatives saying, hey, I know that Kenji's in Japan somewhere, in Tokyo somewhere. Do you have an address? Do you have a phone number? Do you have a contact information? Nobody knew knew where he was. They'd lost contact with him. I actually looked through the Tokyo phone book. And if you can imagine the Tokyo phone book, right? Fortunately, our family has, Madamoto is in itself a fairly uncommon name in Japan. And the actual kanji used is the rarer of two variants that can be used for Madramoto. He informed me of a lot of things, including the uh, 
Maramoto Kamon. This, I guess, was kind of the beginning of my cultural experience into the family and my 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 origins, you know, my roots, so to speak. I also had the opportunity to live abroad in Japan for half a year in 2008, and again during the summer of 2010, when I was studying Japanese language as part of my undergraduate and later graduate studies. As a mixed-race yonsei, most people in Japan do not identify me as Japanese, a reality that I understood prior to living there. Still, I found myself grappling with my identity as a result of my time in Japan. Christy Ishii shares some of these challenges, although as a woman who is fully ethnically Japanese, she faced different challenges of her own while living in Japan over a much longer period of time where she worked as an English teacher. Ishii recalls her first trips to Japan, which made her interested in moving abroad. So I had been to Japan once in high school. It was a sister city exchange. I was a freshman in high school, and I went with a group of folks from Salinas. We went to Kagoshima, super rural area, but that's where a lot of people came from that I think settled in Salinas. I remember I have I had zero zero knowledge of Japanese, and I was one of the one of two people on that trip who were Japanese American. Everyone else was like different backgrounds, and I just I remember feeling so embarrassed. Like this didn't hit me until late later, but like I remember it was really embarrassing, and I was really shy, and I was like kind of using this electronic dictionary to try to communicate but even above that I just felt this this very strong connection to the Obon like it was called the Sanosamatsuri but it was like their local summer festival and I just remember like looking down the street and it was this, this huge festival and I was like wow this is this is a huge version of the small one we have in Salinas we also I used to go to the Sacramento Obon too like which was a bit larger but it was not like a full street right with the whole city involved and so I remember looking at that street like as a freshman so I was like 13 years old or something and I just I think I was tearing up because I was like wow like this is what like the real thing is almost like that was kind of like the impetus or that's like where my mind was and I just remember people throwing mochi balls out of the little tower thing and I was like wow this is so cool because we're in like a yukata and so for me at that age it was just experiencing that there was no language attachment it was just seeing that and, and in real life I was like wow that's amazing and so I look back on that and I was like wow that was a really like raw pure like American girl going to Japan and then I had a chance to go in college through the JCL Kakehashi trip and that was wildly different at that point I had been starting to study Japanese a little bit and I had met a couple Japanese friends that were doing exchange at UCLA I had this like strong affinity for like Japan and I was so excited to go it was such a good opportunity right it was free I had no idea, no expectations when I got on that trip. It was like one of the first pilot ones in 2014. So I was a sophomore, I think, in college, sophomore, junior. And that trip for me was like, I literally, I thought like it was my destiny by the end of that trip to be a connection between Japan and the US. I don't know. They did a really good job in that trip, making you feel really special. And like you had a significance in society. I didn't realize at the time how curated that was. That was just my you know, experience of being in Japan as a tourist with a group of Americans. So it was a very limited touch point to Japan. But that was something that I held on to strongly. So in my mind, like every time I went to Japan, I felt like so happy, so excited. The food was amazing. The people were so, so nice. And like I had that very touristy 
image of Japan, right? And then the last thing was going through the GPIUS internship. It was hosted by ISA, which is a travel agency, and they do English empowerment programs in Japan. So what they do is they pluck out university students from the US, from Ivy Leagues and the UCs, and we would go and we'd go to five different schools. So each week we would go with a different host family. We'd meet them on Sunday. We'd hang out with the kid, the student. It was a freshman in high school and walk them through like an English empowerment program. It was like leadership skills and development and stuff. And so we would watch kids transform from like Monday to Friday with this immersive morning to evening program where we're talking about how to be more confident, all these kind of things. And it was a very, they were very privileged schools. It was not a cheap program. And that was my experience of teaching English in Japan was like inspiring kids to follow their dreams. It's like so it's such a niche thing. That was why I wanted to do the JET program. Like many Japanese Americans who have spent significant time abroad in Japan, Isi came to realize that she would never be able to fully integrate with Japanese society. She recalls, I thought students saw me as a Japanese person. So I thought I could do this, this kind of like thing in disguise where I'm like, we're like similar. I saw myself in these kids somehow. And I think that made me like want to go there and be a role model for someone. I don't know exactly what that was. I left America thinking mistakenly that I was going to find that missing link or that I was going to feel connected to Japan or the people somehow during that experience during JET. I was supposed to find things and pick up on things that would connect me to my childhood. And that's the mindset that I went into Japan with. Not advised, obviously, but that's just how my experience started. And so it was initially, oh my God, I love Japan. I'm so excited to go. Every time I go, it's even better than the last time. I'd never lived in Japan. I just like visited, right, on these curated programs. And so I didn't have any questions about my identity happen when I was on these trips. Like it was just like, you're obviously American and we speak to you in English. And there's a lot of forgiveness around if you can't speak Japanese. But then when you go, obviously, on something like the JET program and you start to live and work somewhere without full knowledge of the language, yeah, very different experience. And so I was definitely not just culture shocked, but expectation shocked, I guess. And identity just flew out the door. Like I, there's so much about that. I don't know how much I can share, but like, I also remember writing, I have a bunch of blogs about this, but I felt like, I felt like I had like a Japanese face and like the American in me was erased. And like, it was such a rough patch in my experience in Japan. Like I, I lost agency to my American identity while looking for my Japanese-ness in Japan. And I couldn't reconcile that until somebody I met in Japan, it was my friend's dad, until he told me, you can just be yourself in Japan. You don't have to subscribe to all the things and all the viewpoints that people have of you as a woman that looks Asian, that looks Japanese in Japan. And I was like, really? Like, I didn't know I could do that. And so even if you tell yourself that, it's like, it's kind of hard to put that into perspective, especially at that age, it's like post-grad. So I think a lot of other things are playing into that experience, but it was happening in Japan. So I ascribed like all these experiences to Japanese people. Oh, Japanese people are so judgmental or like Japan, like such a difficult place to live. Like, why would I come here right after graduation? And a lot of doubt, like, in so so totally different expectations and different experiences and so my viewpoint of japan has changed a lot over the past four years kind of in like in waves like undulations yeah for japanese americans who've spent time living in both the u.s and japan the knowledge that we will never be fully accepted in either country contributes to our complicated relationship with japanese identity among some of our elder generations who lived through the worst of the anti-japanese racism 
it is sometimes difficult to identify Japanese-ness as a positive. Prentice Uchida remarks on the changing attitudes towards Japanese culture. To be Japanese is hip now, right? It's like a hip thing with the anime and all this kind of stuff and the ninja stuff. It's like, okay, to be Japanese is hip. They got no idea of when you're Japanese and people are calling you names, you know. Well, maybe today with a little bit of the hate, but they're not even up on that, you know. As Japanese popular culture has become mainstreamed over the past several decades, some Japanese Americans find it difficult to reconcile the cultural popularity with historic conflict both here in the United States and abroad. Miru Osuga provides their perspective on why they have abstained from engaging with contemporary Japanese culture. I feel like I've rejected a lot of specifically cultural markers of Japanese-ness because they feel so loaded and because I don't want to be essentialized based on something that is physical, a physical reminder of Japanese-ness. I think because Japanese-ness is so easily modified and and commercialized that it feels like a risk to, to put anything down that feels physically Japanese, especially when I don't even know what I'm perpetuating sometimes. Because of my distance from Japan, I don't always know what I'm perpetuating when I put down a cultural marker. You know, like the rising sun is often, or like a red sun is sometimes being used in Asian American spaces when it's in fact a super violent marker of Japanese imperialism. But I've seen it on earrings that my friends have worn or who are not Japanese. And it reminds me, I do have some, maybe more understanding than I give myself credit to understanding like the ways that different markers of Japanese-ness can be, can be more nefarious than we realize. I think it's always interesting to see also how folks who have an ancestry that has been colonized by Japan come back and like embrace or embrace Japanese culture. And I think that is like a portion where I'm like, you know what, just take it. <laughs> like, we did this, like, take it, take it back and, you know, colonize the colonizer. I I don't mean that super seriously, but I think it's like an ironic moment that I, um, it just makes me smile a little bit. I think there's an aspect where I'm much more interested in connecting with folks who have a lived experience of being of Japanese ancestry, not in a way to like consolidate Japanese pride or imperialism or Japanese or anything like that, but just to kind of have a get a pulse on like what people's experiences around their own lived experiences have been. Those stories, I think, become important in informing how what the Japanese American community looks like at all and the the ways that it's informing our ethic or different people's ethics and values around how we're navigating our quote-unquote place in America, whatever that means. Although it is difficult at times to reconcile the past with the present, Japanese Americans seem to share a pride in our common ancestry. How that manifests currently, and to what extent these traditions will be carried into the future, depend greatly on our ability to overcome the stigmatization of Japanese cultural practice. As a new generation emerges, we have an opportunity to instill a sense of pride in being Japanese-American once more. That is why I gave my Gosei-san his Japanese middle name, Masaki, and why I am teaching him to speak a language that I do not fully understand myself. Whether he chooses to identify as Japanese in the future or not is up to him, but he will be given a choice to embrace the culture of our ancestors knowing the sacrifices they made that enable him to do so. 
Look Toward the Mountain is presented by the Heart Mountain Wyoming Foundation and is funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities. Written by Ray Locker and Rob Busher. Produced, edited, and hosted by Rob Busher. Voiceovers sourced by Daryl Kumitomi. Special thanks to Densho, the Japanese American Legacy Project. Many of the oral histories used in this podcast series were provided by Densho. Visit the Heart Mountain website for a full list of credits. This concludes our special three-part series sponsored by the Embassy of Japan in the United States. Stay tuned for updates on new episodes and extras.